Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I am tired of Earth. We are no one. These people. We are everyone. Tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. And we are invisible. They claim their labors are to build a heaven. Yet their heaven is populated with horrors. Perhaps the world is not made. Perhaps nothing is made. A clock without a craftsman. Always late. It's too late. Always has been. Always will be. Too late. Hello and welcome to the one and only episode of Still Watching Watchmen. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
we are covering, we're going to be talking about the HBO, the new HBO series Watchmen on this podcast still watching. Usually we cover entire seasons of television at the time, at a time, but there's so much going on this fall that we're sort of taking things a little differently. So this is our one and only opportunity. I don't know. I don't want to promise that. Maybe, maybe we'll revisit it later, but as far as our plan is right now, this is the time where Richard and I are going to talk about the HBO series Watchmen which is an adaptation of the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, uh, iconic graphic novel from the eighties Watchmen. Uh, we are here. We are only going to be discussing season one, episode one. Uh, it's summer and we're running out of ice. Um, and you know, we are not going to spoil beyond that, even though some of us may have seen more. Uh, we're just going to be talking about that. We're really excited to talk to you about this. We've got a great interview for this episode. I'm so excited. The great Tim Blake Nelson uh, is here to talk about his character. He plays Looking Glass. Uh, so he's here to talk about that and some other stuff that he's got going on this fall. So it's going to be a great episode. Tim Blake Nelson is here. Richard Lawson's here. Joanna Robinson's here. Here we go. Watchmen. Uh, Richard, what is your relationship with uh, Watchmen previous to this uh, episode of television? Uh, well, when the movie was announced, the, the movie, the, the Zack Snyder movie came out in 2009, um, it was announced obviously like well before the release. And so I did a little bit of research. I didn't actually read the comic uh, or the graphic novel rather, um, but it intrigued me. I, I liked the idea of an alternate timeline uh, for world history, American history in particular. Um, I liked that it wasn't involving superheroes that i was familiar with you know um the movie left something to be desired though it has its its strong points for sure um but i liked the idea of it i liked the world of it i like um the way that it's uh both satire of american sort of identity and history while also probing things a bit more sort of somberly and deeply um so yeah the, the idea of a tv show about the centered on this particular ip was interesting. And then there's the Damon Lindelof factor, uh, who did, he did such a good job with a weird job with the leftovers for HBO a few years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I'm intrigued. I mean, you, you know, a bit more about Watchmen than I do, I, I believe. Well, just in that, I mean, I have read the, the source material, um, the, the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, uh, graphic novel, which came out in the late eighties. And, uh, it's, it's a really interesting examination of, uh, the superhero comic book genre. And, uh, and it's a re, it was a reaction to the Reagan era, sort of, and the Cold War. That's, that's what they're writing about in that book. And so what a lot of questions that people had around this new series is like, is this a remake? Is this a reboot? Is this, what is this? And Damon Lindelof, who, as you said, did such a great job with the leftovers, uh, also one of the, the co-creators of Lost, um, he he wrote this great letter that's up on his Instagram page, and I encourage you guys to read it. He posted it like, I don't know, I want to say a little over a year ago, so you'll have to sort of scroll back past uh, some fish nun memes from Star Wars. Lindelof's Instagram is a joy, so you should just follow him anyway. But he's got this letter that he put on Instagram, basically like, why me? Why Watchmen? Because it's such a beloved property and like Lindelof knows a thing or two about like, uh, over engaged fandoms and navigating them. And so he's like, I get it. You're mad that I'm doing this or you're mad that this is even happening or whatever. He's like, well, here's why I'm doing it. What it means to me. 
and he called it in that in that letter he called it a remix which is not to say they're taking whatever happened in the comic book that is canon that happened and then this is sort of like okay what if years later what would Watchmen look like years later. So it's like a sequel. It's a sequel basically. But I think they're not calling it out of deference, deference to Alan Moore, who famously hates every single filmed adaptation of his work. Alan Moore did like From Hell and like a bunch of other, you know, and like basically anything that's ever been made of his comics, he's hated. So I think they're not calling it a sequel sort of out of, out of deference to Alan Moore. They're calling it a remix, but, um, there are, you will see characters from the original comic in this story older. Um, it's definitely a sequel to the comic book, not to the movie, because the squid shower that we'll talk about in this, in this, uh, premiere episode, that's from the book, but it was cut from the Zack Snyder movie. So this is, a, this is like a continuation of the book story. And what the book is mostly preoccupied with is, what does the governmental power structures that we currently are navigating, you know, what does it, what do, what are the lies? What are the half truths that are necessary to keep a power structure intact? And who has the authority to, to govern, to rule? And this great, phrase that comes out of the title Watchmen is who watches the Watchmen, right? Like who, like, okay, if you have someone in authority, who is making sure that they are not abusing that authority? So as Aretha Franklin uh, once asked, who's Zoom and who? (laughs) So the, uh, the, this show takes place in a world where, um, there's something called the Keen Act, and I, I promise not to get like too much lost in the weeds of the comic book. There's something called the Keen Act, um, which bans masked vigilante justice, right? So you're not allowed to be a masked vigilante, which is, you know, the main, the original Watchmen characters were masked vigilantes in, in the vein of Batman, et cetera. This is sort of who Alan Moore is interrogating. Um, but in this world that, that Lindelof is presenting to us, the masked, superhero-esque figures are the cops. Only the cops are allowed to do this. Uh, and then you've got other masked figures in these, in this terrorist groups that, that are the Rorschach groups that are inspired by a character, uh, in the original comic book. So this is a new watchman in terms of like the watchman of the cops. And that is exactly one of the very sensitive subjects that Lindelof is taking on head on and his writer's room, we should say. It's a very diverse, like racially gender wise, uh, background rise writer's room. So it's not just like this white man, Damon Lindelof and his take on like race relations and the cops, uh, in, in 2019. But, um, he's, he's taking on police violence and, and terrorism and racism. That's what's, those are the light topics that Damon Lindelof has decided to treat, uh, in this comic book show. So, um, here we go. Watchmen. Did that, did that set the stage, Richard? Mm-hmm. Did yeah, we, no, we all no. on the same page here? Yeah, no, it okay. for sure clarified some things because this is a pretty confusing hour of television. It really is. And it's very, it's like, um, it's so weird. And I, I love it. Um, because I'm a huge musicals fan and I'm a huge fan of Watchmen. And so when you bang, uh, the musical Oklahoma together with, 
some weird and wonderful, uh, superhero comic book stuff, then, uh, I'm, I'm enormously pleased. I'm worried this will not find a wide audience, but like, maybe that's okay that it doesn't. I don't know. You know, maybe it will. Who knows? But, um, yeah. So do we want to, do we want to run down it sort of like beat by beat? Yeah, I feel like that makes the most sense because I feel like I'm, I'm, I count myself among them. There will be people, uh, who are pretty confused about some of the yeah. visuals and, and illusions and all that. So yeah, I think if we kind of just go through it, um, that'll help me at least. So I'd be grateful. Excellent. So this, this, uh, episode is written by Damon Lindelof, we should say, directed by Nicole Castle, who directed, uh, a number of episodes this season. She's also an executive producer on the show. So like she's enjoying the same. And Lindelof is, is rare, a rare showrunner that uh, the kind of creative partnerships that he likes to have with his directors are often he picks a director and makes them like a, basically a co showrunner with him. Uh, this is true of me leader on the leftovers this is true of Jack Bender on lost, uh, and is true. Of Nicole Castle, uh, who did the great film, the woodsman, uh, with Kevin Bacon. That was like this, I think it was like a Sundance hit. Anyway, it's a, it's a great film, very dark. Uh, and so she's sort of his partner in crime for this, which is really fun. Um, but she directed this episode and it opens, um, in 1921 in Tulsa with this real world event that happened, like a lot of what we're seeing in the show is alternate history, but the 1921 Tulsa riots, which is also known as black wall street, um, is a real event that happened. Um, so Richard, like what was your, what was your understanding of what was going on, uh, in this opening, uh, sequence? Um, I, I understood it to be a, a, you know, an actual historical thing. Um, you know, I think that unfortunately, uh, you know, mob violence against black people in America, lynchings and whatnot have been uh, a topic of conversation of late. Uh, and I've read some people, you know, making the important historical clarification that we tend to think of like, Emmett Till or other instances where, you know, a black man or boy was, you know, accused of raping or otherwise sexually assaulting a white woman. And then he, you know, the mob would come for him and, and murder him, um, which certainly did happen. But a lot of lynching and, and, um, you know, violence against black people at, you know, around the turn of the century and, and, and was, was, was economically related. It was about white people trying to steal land from black people in the South. It was about, well, in this case, you know, uh, tearing down a thriving economy, uh, in Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, that just kind of further, uh, you know, sort of explains the, the broad and still ongoing system of economic oppression tied to violence, uh, experienced by black people in America. And for the show to open with this kind of, uh, lovely dreamy imagery of this, you know, a kid watching a movie about, uh, you know, uh, with a, a black hero in the silent film, uh, but then to have it tumble into terrible violence, like that's a pretty bold opening statement, I would say. Right. And this idea of like, he's, so this kid is watching this serial, the sort of black and white serial. Um, and it's sort of like trust in the law, like, like you can trust the lawmen. And then we cut to this just utterly chaotic, nightmarish chapter of American history where this incredibly wealthy black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you see all these like, uh, 
it's not just the the violence of the people in this scene which is awful to watch it's also the violence against the businesses all along the street mm-hmm. you know you just see like all these businesses bombed out and you know and all this this you know just this infrastructure that this community has built for itself just decimated on you know and it happens on the ground it happens via air attack and this is all accurate and true of what happened in 1921 in Tulsa um John Legend, I believe, is working on a film adaptation of this story. Like, we'll get, we'll get, uh, I think in the near future, we'll get some uh, more art about this particular time in U.S. history because it is on a lot of people's minds given a lot of the conversations we're having around, uh, racism, whether it ever, ever went away <laughs> in the U.S. Guess what? It didn't. Um, and so to revisit this, like, very ugly chapter, um, in our lives, this, episode opens with like imagery of lynching and ends with a lynching. Uh, and so that's just sort of where we are. Welcome to Watchmen. Um, but it ends with, you know, this kid holding, you know, he, you know, he tries to escape. His mom is killed. All of his protectors are killed. Um, there's a note in his pocket says like, watch over this boy. Um, uh, but there's no one to watch over, like who watches, over, like there's no one to watch over him. Uh, and it's, mm-hmm. he picks up this baby who's wrapped in a blanket that looks like the American flag and like holds it. And then you get this really cool uh, rear projections. I don't know. That's not the term. I don't know what it is, but like you get the title of the episode, which is a quote from a, a line from a song from Oklahoma summer and we're running out of ice, which is about a dead preserving a dead body. Um, like up behind him, which gives it a very cool, like a uh, comic book feel the way the font hangs there behind him. Uh, mm-hmm. and the yellow is iconically Watchmen and the font is iconically Watchmen. So that's like, this is a very not Watchmen event, but it's, um, but it's got these trappings of Watchmen about it. So, uh, there we are. And then we cut to the now, uh, that we're in. Um, which is a very uh not our now not our now now so this is the alternate history so uh in the original Watchmen comics um the one of the major historic changing events is that like watergate doesn't happen like nixon thwarts watergate and he also changes the law so that term limit laws so that he's allowed to be in power for a long time so it's like uh, you know, let's forget about Reagan being in power because he doesn't come to power. Let's think about what America would look like under Nixon for an extended period of time. If you want to talk about abuse of power, right? And what Lindelof decided to do is he's like, okay, so what the original Washington is about the extended reign of President Nixon. President Redford then takes over and President Redford, Robert Redford, the actor, uh, and, and like, that's a great choice. That's, that's from a continuation comic too, but that's a great choice, right? Cause you could see Robert Redford, who's so politically minded, like could definitely have become president probably if he wanted to. Um, an actor becoming president what? in the 80s? What are you talking about? Never. Um, what, what would happen under the long reign of a liberal president? And so that's sort of like what we're looking at here, which is like, there's this concept of redfordation, which is like reparations. But we, we open with this, um, traffic stop, this cop stopping, uh, a car, which is a, a, a site that those of us who have watched a lot of, I don't know, cell phone captured traffic stops are like kind of are, are fairly familiar with, but there's a few, new alternate history wrinkles, right? Like that you have, if you're a cop, you have to 
call headquarters in order to get your gun unlocked. And if you're mm-hmm. a cop, you have to sort of say, like, this is being re- recorded. Do you consent to this being recorded? These are, like, a couple things. Um, and if you're a cop, you're wearing a mask. You're wearing a mask. And it's it's creepy. And we'll find out why they're wearing masks in a little bit. But it's creepy and... Uh, the, and then we should note that the, the races of the individuals here is a white man in a truck and a black man, uh, wearing the, the cop uniform, uh, which is the reverse of a lot of these, like, traffic stops gone wrong that we've watched through cell phone footage and stuff like that. So, um, what do you, what it, like, how did, how did this scene strike you, Richard? Well, there begins my, I'm extending the benefit of the doubt to Lindelof and Castle and the rest of the team creating the show um, because, you know, The Leftovers was kind of a slow burn to get where it was really going right. and then it became something pretty thrilling. Um, but I think The Leftovers was also contending with maybe less fraught um, subject matter and optics. Um, yeah. So this scene is where I started sort of questioning the, I guess, value of the oftentimes throughout the rest of the episode, the, I, I hate to put it this kind of crassly, but the role reversal um, in terms of American power structures and dynamics. Um, you know, I, I, I did think about the, I believe now scuttled Weiss and Benioff show that was going to be <laughs> roughly uh, uh, imagining yeah. if the, you know, the civil war had been lost or the union had lost the civil war. Um, and it's like, okay, I guess there's sort of a noodly, vaguely interesting thought experiment to be done, but it also, I don't know. I, 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 I'm curious what people are going to think about the way this, this, this opening episode, um, considers that dynamic and, and shifts it for dramatic purposes. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not quite sure where the, if the thematic justification is there yet, but I think this is also just a pilot episode. So I'm very curious to see how they kind of justify it and where they, where they take it. So this, this, this sort of exact unease that you mentioned here was raised at the television critics association, summer press tour that I attended earlier this year. Um, Eric Diggins, who's a great, um, you know, culture writer and, um, broadcaster for NPR, uh, also a black man, like raised this question of like, are you asking me, are you asking me to sympathize with the cops here? And also, to say his his point is that if you just take this episode by itself, which you, Richard, say are saying we probably shouldn't, and Damon Lindelof at TCA said, please don't just take this episode by itself. Um, this is a TV show. Like, we have more to tell. But um, is saying, like, <sighs> Eric's point was, the institutional race, the racism that is a plague on our society currently is inextricably linked with our police force. Um, and this we know from great investigative reporting in terms of like the ways in which the Klan have infiltrated, um, the, the police force. And so Eric was saying like, you can't, you can't say, okay, here are the white, the shitty, Rorschach mask wearing white supremacists and here are cops and they're separate when, um, when those two institutions, if you really want to examine, you know, police force and white supremacy in America, those things are linked. They're not on opposite sides of any kind of fight. 
And, um, Charles Pulliam Moore, IO9, uh, had a, like, sort of a similar take outside of, uh, New York Comic Con. I will say very quickly, very quickly in episode two, uh, all, all questions about whether or not this show will address that are, uh, you can put them aside. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know that that's an annoying thing to hear in this day and age of too much TV. And if you are personally offended by this, uh, episode, um, I, I am not gonna, you know, tell you, <laughs> you know, how to feel, but I will say that if you have the patience. Or to subject yourself to another, <laughs> yeah. I absolutely. Mean, if, you, not. if you don't want to watch more, don't watch more. Don't but watch like, more. Absolutely. You're saying not. that there is, yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. I'm just saying very quickly. It's not like you have to wait till episode six. I'm saying very quickly. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So the, the, we, we get this exchange. Um, as you say, it, it feels interesting and uneasy. Um, and you really do have to, you want to, uh, you and I both want to give this show the benefit of the doubt that it's going to like really engage, uh, with these very hot button issues that it's raising right away. So, um, this cop gets shot because he can't pull his gun out fast enough, uh, cause it, you know, the regulations have it locked. He gets shot. It turns out that the guy he stopped was just transporting lettuce um, but he also, also seems to be part of this militia. Like both is, both seem to be true. Right. So. And he throws, he throws a head of lettuce into the car. I believe it was Romaine. <laughs> Romaine as a sort of symbol of something that they kind of reference later. Right. I think it's just sort of like a fuck you. I was transporting lettuce. Like it was lettuce. Oh, you see. asshole. That was my right. interpretation of it. Um, and then we cut to our second Oklahoma, the musical reference of the episode. There will be four. Uh, this is number two. This is what, uh, Don Johnson's character, Chief Judd, refers to as, or no, actually, uh, Regina King's character refers to as Black Oklahoma. Um, and, uh, it's delightful. What do you, what did she make of this musical interview, interlude, uh, Richard? Well, I mean, it felt very timely given that, like, sexy Oklahoma just took yes. off Broadway and then Broadway by storm, um, and, uh, had us who were fortunate enough to see it sort of, Mm, reassessing and maybe further appreciating that show's legacy in the American canon. Um, the, 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 the sexy production sort of unearths a deep, uh, perhaps howling American darkness, uh-huh. uh, that the, the, the sunniness of the show, of the, the, you know, the, the movie, um, uh, kind of issues, uh-huh. uh, cause it's a dark show in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think also then, to have this meta thing of a show that, you know, a television series that is seemingly, um, doing some, you know, maneuvering of, of, uh, you know, optics and, 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 and switching roles or whatever to then have that it, something within that the series that, that is also doing that, like this, you know, all black production of Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think it's daring and I think it's an example of, Lindelof loving these sort of esoteric things that are, you know, clearly just like tumbling around in his mind and, and hopefully then using them to thematically thread throughout the show, um, which is, you know, another reason why I'm intrigued. I mean, the, the heavy leaning on the Oklahoma stuff is, is, is weird and, 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 yeah. and pretty bold for a, a big HBO pilot, you know? Yeah, it's super weird and I really, really love it. Um, we should say that the show, you know, the, the, 
It opens with the Tulsa riots. It's set in Oklahoma as well. So like, you know, the, 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 the present day alternative history stuff is set in Oklahoma as well. So, um, you know, here we are, uh, for the season, but yeah, it, it's, it's like by the time the second, this, this second Oklahoma reference rolled around, I was like, okay. And the fact that they hit it a couple times more before they close out, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you're Lindelof, uh, you know, and, and once again, I don't want to give like sole attribution to him because he really does have a, a quite collaborative writer's room, but the kind of stories he likes to tell, at least with the leftovers, um, yeah, is, is plucking out these, odd cultural touchstones and then like making us re-examine or rethink like i think of this is a this is a weird example but i think in terms of the leftovers i always think of um like perfect strangers i don't know if you remember this mm-hmm. but like yeah. that, that oh, was time, like yeah. that's a thing that like he, you know and you're just sort of like oh huh what's interesting is i i interviewed nicole castle a ways back and i asked her if they had like heard of or seen sexy oklahoma or oklahoma that fucks whatever you want to call it uh, you know, when they considered using it, and she's like, no, that was a coincidence. Like we had already put Oklahoma through this, uh, before that production was like on our radar. So, um, but I think they're both doing similar things. If my understanding of that production of Oklahoma is correct, I have not seen it, but, um, re-examining our foundational American myths sort of thing. Is that sound right yeah and also looking at the the how violence is always at the center of those myths Mm -hmm. and uh and and sort of looking at it through a a contemporary lens yeah um so uh the chicha character played by don johnson is pulled out of this production because of the shooting of one of his cops um and we we are introduced to tim blake nelson's character uh looking glass who has my the uh, the character designs of these like watchman figures uh, are all great, but the looking glass, uh, design is my favorite. He wears this mirrored, um, mask and there are times when he like pulls them up so you can like, so Tim Blake Nelson can like talk. Um, this, this cop who was shot, like his own identity is a secret. So needing to take him to the hospital and keep him secret is this whole part of it. But then there's also just this like light touches of humor, like, the chief judge character being like, pull, pull your mask down basically so I can use your mask as a, as a mirror to like adjust my, mm-hmm. adjust myself. I mean, it's just like, well, cause he very, yeah, yeah, he very pointedly does wear his full uniform and like is like a sort of seeming public right face of the police force, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And then we get this scene where, Chief Judd goes to talk to, uh, this, this slain cop. Or, or shot. He's not dead. Uh, this, the shot cop, Charlie's, uh, wife. And this, and we get some exposition via the, via the, uh, this like, uh, you know, emotional grieving process scene of like the amount of secrecy that these cops have to go through, uh, in order to protect their identity. Mm-hmm. We get a glimpse of the fact that Dr. Manhattan is on Mars. And that's, you know, that's a reference to this character from the original comics. Uh, who basically left, left the earth because it was just too much, uh, for him. He's like, maybe I'll go find life elsewhere, basically. Um, so, uh, Dr. Manhattan is out there in this universe. Um, and then we get to, uh, the star of the show. Like, the star of the show is not Mm -hmm. Don Johnson. It's not Tim Blake Nelson. It's not anyone else we've met. It's, uh, newly minted Oscar winner, Regina F. King. 
uh, who's, who's so great and everything. She plays Detective Angela Abar and uh, like her Watchmen character is Sister Knight. And, uh, she's so great and everything. Obviously she won, uh, the Oscar last year, but, um, I, I think my favorite work she's ever done was for Lindelof on The Leftovers. So I'm mm-hmm. so excited to see her at the center of this show. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. it's really fun to, and, and exciting to have, uh, you know, Regina King is by no means an older woman, but she's, you know, she's a middle aged black woman at the lead of a huge sort of, not, I guess it's kind of sci fi. Like, you know, this is a very, this is a genre show and we don't, you know, that doesn't tend to happen. I mean, I guess it's happening more, more recently, you know, think about, um, the Star Trek show on CBS All Access. Like, I don't know, but like, it's just, it's just like not a role that I think, um, people that, you know, would be expected of Regina King given the work she's done, but like, it's just like, it fits also. It's, it's great. Um, and I think it's really cool that she and Lindelof clearly, uh, enjoy working together, um, because if anything else, if nothing else, Lindelof and his the rest of his team, like, he, but you know, they, they create really interesting things for actors to do. Yeah, and like, not only is it interesting that Regina King is at the center of this show, uh, and that is great. It's interesting because Damon Lindelof, in his previous uh, two projects, Lost and Leftovers, was fond of putting a very clear avatar for himself in the character of Jack Shepard on Lost, played by Matthew Fox, and Justin Thoreau's character on The Leftovers. These are like, these are Lindelof avatars. And there are filmmakers and, and showrunners who only know how to do that. And, um, what Lindelof said in this show, basically, you know, I'm extrapolating. I'm not, I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but he's like, what if it's not me, <laughs> the center of this universe this time? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is, is a, is a, Cool thing to do. Uh, yeah. And, and Regina King has talked about, there's a scene later on in the episode where, you know, she, her character and her husband have like, um, you know, not, not like graphic, but not, not graphic sex. And she's like, I've never gotten to do a sex scene like that. You know what I mean? Like Regina King, who's been in this mm-hmm. business for yeah. so long, she's like, um, I got to like kick so much ass. I got to like, get really strong i got to have this cool sex scene and i'm like a woman of color of a certain age and that's really cool for me and so i you know i think it's really cool to watch so you know and just like and the meta the meta-ness of that is like uh, then i think of that like the the little kid that the show opens on watching like this black lawman hero at the center of this this serial film that he's watching and it's like okay but that's what watching's doing it's putting this woman this woman at the center of this story um and that's it's a very cool thing uh so yeah so she she's giving this like basically we find out that like all cops have to have all like alter egos like a superhero have to have an alter ego and her alter ego is like someone who runs a bakery um she's got Mm -hmm. these two kids they're white. We don't know why yet. Um, she, uh, she goes into, she grew up in, uh, Vietnam, uh, before, and then we find out that Vietnam is a state, a U.S., one of like the U.S. states or U.S. territories. And that's part of the like Watchmen alternate history, Vietnam War alternate history stuff. Um, and we find out that why cops wear masks and it's because of this incident called White Night. Uh, where a bunch of cops were targeted in their homes and it was decided after, including Regina King's character. And so after that happened, all these cops then 
adopted these um, identities so that they would not be uh, vulnerable to attack um, by the criminal element. So there you go. Um, and then we have Richard, my favorite part of the whole show, which is the squid shower. Uh, I want to know what you think the squid shower is before I tell you what the squid shower is. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I guess you, you're in the Bay Area, so it doesn't happen much, but here it rains squid all the time. Oh, so it, okay. it just felt like a, like a real slice of life kind of thing, <laughs> you know, just a little one, a little thing for New Yorkers. Um, no, I knew that there was a big squid involved in the, the graphic novel that was not used in Snyder's film. Yeah. Um, I've seen the art for it. Um, but I have questions about this because there was also, I think later in the episode, they mentioned something about interdimensional or something like that. So I'm like, okay, so tell me what's going on. Okay. So in the original Watchmen comics, this character of Ozymandias, who is played by Jeremy Irons in this episode, um, is one of the Watchmen and he basically creates this fake terrorist attack essentially uh like a 9-11 type event in order to stop the cold war in order so uh, what he comes up with is like we have to come up with a threat that is so out so outside ourselves that the warring factions of the earth will put down their nuclear arms and band together against it so he creates this like fake alien squid attack on new york um, and it's not fake. I mean, it's, it's not fake in that, it, you know, people really die. There really is a terrorist attack on New York, but like he like creates this squid to make it happen and manipulates the media to, to make it all like seem like an alien invasion and it works. And that's the, like, that's the chilling finale of Watchmen is like Ozymandias is the villain, but is he? Because he stops the Cold War, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for the greater mm-hmm. good. So, uh, uh, what's interesting about these squid showers is it seems to me, we don't, we don't know this for certain, but one might extrapolate that, like, if there was a giant squid event, uh, you know, that, that kept the world in line. I mean, you think about post 9-11 and how quick, uh, the U.S. was to, cede control to our government, the Bush administration, because we were so scared. Right. And you think about the Patriot Act mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like that's what it, that's what a large scale terrorist event can do. But eventually that, that fades, that fear fades, that post 9-11 fear fades. And then, you know, presidential administrations can no longer act with the carte blanche that they enjoyed, you know, immediately after. However, my guess would be that these ongoing squid showers are like a living reminder of like, don't get out of line because remember the squid, you know, remember the squid attack. So here are these squid showers. They have in this universe, they have things like squid shelters. They've got these like street cleaning trucks that we see in this episode that clean up like the squid after, you know, so it's just sort of like an ongoing reminder of remember that squid attack and remember why we all, uh, work together now. So they just believe that a, a squids could return and attack the earth at any moment. That's my interpretation of right. the showers. I don't know that for certain, but like, that's why I would guess there would be ongoing squid showers as a result of this like initial fake squid attack thing. Are we all lost? Which yet? sort of brings to mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, this is Watchmen. We're not talking about Lost. Right? 
Um, What's left over when all, no, sorry, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which sort of brings to mind, it's some, in some sense it's leftover squid. Um, uh, this kind of, this not kind of, this entirely odious notion that it, you know, perpetuated by conspiracy theorists about false flag operations. Yeah. You know, um, like horrible things that are staged or, deliberately done in order to affect public policy or whatever. Um, I guess this is sort of a version of that. Right. So, uh, and, and what Watchmen, uh, well, what's, what's interesting about the end of Watchmen, and this is true of the Zack Snyder film as well. They don't use a giant squid. It's like a Dr. Manhattan sort of nuclear threat thing, but the, the effect is the same, which is that these, like basically the figure of Rorschach, uh, who's played, like, I don't love the Zack Snyder film, but, uh, this character is played by Jackie Rahaley, who is great and great in that role. Um, but the character of Rorschach is basically trying to uncover the truth. And he does. He uncovers the truth about Ozymandias and this fake terrorist attack. But the other heroes, even though they agree that Ozymandias is a villain here, they see the greater good argument. And they kill Rorschach in order to keep the secret of this fake attack. It's a dark ending of the book, but it's just sort of like, for the greater good, we're going to kill this truth teller. And Rorschach is like, not the most appealing figure, but he does have the truth and wants to tell the truth. So there are these like Rorschach journals that he left behind that are discovered. And so that's sort of the idea of this Rorschach militia is that they're like, we know the truth about they're like nine 11 truthers, but what if they're right sort of thing? <laughs> like we know the truth that this mm-hmm. terrorist attack was just a ploy by the powers that be to keep us in line. And we want to speak the truth. They're speaking. The truth is all tied up in a lot of really shitty white supremacy, but like that's, you know, that's unsurprising to me, but like, you know, which is again, where this show courts, I mean, it skirts a line, it crosses a line. I don't know where it's like, okay, I get like the thought experiment of subverting these tropes in our, in, in our real world and, 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 and sort of, you know, flipping our sympathies or whatever. And I, I get, it's interesting, but it's also like, is it good? Like, is there value in this kind of thought experiment? I don't know yet. I have to watch more, but like, it's just, you know, because from, from one angle, one could see this episode as being pro cop, pro truther, pro this, pro that, you know, like the, in a way that like, I don't know, um, it doesn't quite match. It doesn't at all match uh, the, the real world. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm confused and curious at the same time. <laughs> yeah. The confusion is really understandable because there's so much like, I'm only now realizing while talking to you how much like knowledge of the comics has helped me parse this in a way that if you come mm-hmm. in cold, which, you know, which they're hoping you can come in cold and still watch this, um, might be very confusing, but basically like, um, yeah, these Rorschach characters are are trying to speak truth to power, but they're also the bad guys. And so it's it's confusing, uh, to say the least. But um but uh that's what the squid showers are about. That we see uh the sister knight character get like a page that she has, you know, that she has to go in, little big horn is the code. And uh we see her go into she basically has like a secret lair 
a back cave essentially at the bottom mm-hmm. of her bakery that will never open. The bakery is called Milk in Hanoi, which I really like because she makes like Vietnamese uh, baked goods. I think that's a really charming pun name. Um, the the good place should be jealous. And uh, we see her transform in, for the first time into Sister Knight, which is this nun like this leather clad nun like figure. Um. I'm fascinated by the choice of design here because Lindelof has always been like really preoccupied with religion and what religion and faith mean to us in times of uh extreme distress. And so the fact that this superhero cop who, you know, he beats people basically with her rosary beads, uh, you know, is this nun figure is really very fascinating to me. But basically she bops over to this uh trailer park uh slum type place called Nixonville and picks up like a person of interest and brings him in and we see him interrogated in this like sort of extreme clockwork orange esque um interrogation scene. What did you think of this um wh- you know, which Tim Blake Nelson's character Looking Glass uh conducts? What did you think of this interrogation sequence? I mean it's effectively done and it's a good sort of exposition tool without it seeming like an obvious exposition tool, you know, um, just kind of clarifying who's who and what people believe and whatnot. Um, again, I have questions about like where sympathies are supposed to lie in some ways, but, um, but you know, the, I like the way the episode, the episode juggles the, the, the sort of ground level, uh, not social realism, but, 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 um, the, the 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 more recognizable stuff with the sort of super the the comic trappings you know like the mirror mask and and the nun you know i i think that i i i buy the texture of the world so far which i think is crucial to this kind of thing we go really quickly from that to um and you know the thing is is like i think watchman is asking us to engage in something truly truly complicated which are, mm-hmm. which is there are no institutional good guys and bad guys. Because when we right. see these interrogation tactics, both in the room and then in the like beating that happens after, that's a poli- police brutality that, that the, the yeah. episode's not asking you to ignore. And so I don't, I, I think despite the fact that like, um, there are, Care, cop characters who might have our sympathy from time to time, it's not really anointing them as like, here are the heroes and the white supremacist um, terrorists or the bad guys. I mean, I'm not sure we're going to like meet a sympathetic terrorist, but I'm just saying like, I don't think that they're saying like cops are good uh, at all, uh, especially with this I- interrogation. So... Um, but we go to this cattle ranch, um, uh, you know, the, the, the cops that we've been following are trying to nab these terrorists. There's a lot of, uh, cow violence, uh, Gatling gun on cow violence. Um, and mm-hmm. then we see, we have, um, Chief Judd and, uh, this character who's called, I think, Pirate Jenny. Yeah. Pirate Jenny flying. Uh, we see, Judd and this character Pirate Jenny flying something from the comic book, uh, called Archie Archimedes. It's this owl ship that Night Owl flew in the comics. Um, and they crash and, and, uh, Chief Judd comes, I mean, like it all works out kind of in their favor in the end. Um, but 
almost as if by accident and the ship is destroyed and Judd comes out and he's like laughing hysterically. And later we see him like taking drugs. And so I was just sort of like, how, mm-hmm. like how in control of the situation was he, you know, is my question. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we cut over to Jeremy Irons. This is an, this, like, even I, with my, like, attempted deep bench of comic knowledge, even I was, like, a little, uh, unsure of what to make of this Jeremy Irons sequence. Jeremy Irons, once again, as, as I mentioned, is playing the character of Ozymandias, though he's not explicitly called that, uh, yet. Uh, he's got these two servants who call him Master, uh, and they, they have a cake for him, and then he says he's making, he's what, he's writing a play. A tragedy in five acts, and he's calling it the Watchmaker's Son. The character of Doctor Manhattan from the original comics is a Watchmaker's Son, so that's a that's a. I like. I wonder if his character is going to be writing the story of Watchmen. Would be kind of my. And guess. we saw yeah, all the stuff with the watches at the right. They're using the white supremacist compound. Using watch batteries. So yeah, tick 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 tick. It's a th- you know, it's a thing. This is just so leftovers to me. It's a thing that is like confusing and disparate, and will probably all coalesce uh, in mm-hmm. in a way that will make sense. But we'll have to navigate a lot of confusing things to get there. Like I don't know who these servant characters are. I don't know why they seem like like enthralled uh, almost with the Jeremy Irons character. Um, so I don't quite know, uh, what's going on there, but, uh, stay tuned to find out. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we, we cut back to this dinner scene, uh, with, uh, Angela's family and, and Chief Judd's family. And like I said, he's snorting, snorting, uh, some sort of drug. And then we get our third Oklahoma reference. Um, what'd you think of this musical, musical table number? I mean, it was good. And, you know, Don Johnson's having an interesting right? little year. Yeah. With this and, and, knives, and out. knives out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, I was just so tense watching it because I was positive that like bullets were going to come raining in through the windows or something. Like I, 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 I didn't think that, that this like happy moment would, would be allowed to just exist. And then it kind of was, I mean, obviously it led to, I mean, something bad happened later, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was again, you know, Lindelof doing something weird that has, you know, just sort of on his mind or, or whatever and, 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 but sort of threading it thematically in. And, uh, you know, I think it was a good way to get us to like, uh, Don Johnson's character only to see him leave us <laughs> shortly thereafter. Yeah. He's so good here. And like, he has, I don't, I don't think that I knew that he had such a good singing voice, but he has this lovely singing voice. Uh, which is say the actress, Frances Fisher is playing the great Frances Fisher playing his wife. Um, Mm -hmm. and I just, I, I loved this sequence. It, It is very tense. There's, there's some great stylistic stuff. There's great stylistic stuff throughout. Um, but the overhead shot of the table, like through the light fixture or whatever, and you see it's like, it's supposed to look like a clock, I think is what we're supposed to take from it or whatever. Um, there's a couple overhead shots that are just like really cool and stylish. And yeah, it's very, it's very tense. This scene, uh, it's enjoyable and tense at the same time. So, um, and you know, and then we, we get, um, you know, his, I mean, I'll just cut to it, right? Like his death shortly thereafter, the, the mm-hmm. certainty 
that he was going, I like, it wasn't like a shocking reveal to me at the end. Like I was certain he was going to die. Like I think 15 minutes before the end of the episode, I was like this, he's not making it through this. And oh my God, they're going to kill Don Johnson. And what a cool, like not, I don't know, you know, beheading of Ned Stark moment sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so Don Johnson doesn't make it through the episode. He's lynched. Um, Angela's called out by this, uh, shadowy figure that we met early in the episode played by Lewis Gossett Jr. We don't know who he is. He seems to know a lot about her. Um, and he leads her to a lynched, uh, Chief Judd and Judd, uh, you know, the, the song Poor Judge is Dead, which the lyric that started the episode, uh, is from, uh, sung by the great Gordon McRae, uh, plays as the episode goes out. So that is the first episode of Watchmen. There's a few other things that I, I want to talk about, um, before we get into like our larger, 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 episode impressions mm-hmm. um and that is uh this idea of the meta show within the show uh which is called American Hero Story uh American Hero Story Colin Miniman and Nicole Castle who directed this episode did confirm to me that a yes that is a Ryan Murphy uh intentional Ryan Murphy reference and b they had Ryan Murphy's blessing to do it uh, basically, so they're, they're okay. doing American okay. Horror Story, but it's called American Hero Story. And they are, you know, this show, which we see advertised throughout the episode, the show within the show, uh, is telling the story of the Minutemen. And the Minutemen in the original Watchmen comics are the, are the heroes that came before the Watchmen, the original heroes. Um, it doesn't take, their story is not really, it's in the book and it's not in the book, but it's basically like, the before the Watchmen, there were the Minutemen. And that's what this fictional story within the story is going to tell us. And so like, let's just, let's just unpack this for a second. Uh, Lindelof is giving us the Watchmen that takes place in the alternative. Now through this mm-hmm. American hero story TV show, that's within the TV show, he's going to tell the story of the Minutemen, which includes characters that we're familiar with, like the comedian, um, and the original Night Owl and, um, Silk Spectre and stuff like that. Okay. So that, that's, um, that's the Minutemen. And then I, I'm convinced that Ozymandias is going to be writing a play that is the story of the Watchmen that Alan Moore did. <laughs> so mm, Minutemen, okay. uh, like a, a TV series and then a TV series about the Minutemen and then a play about the Watchmen written by the Ozymandias character. And then the current Watchmen. And I think those are the like Russian nesting dolls of story that Lindelof intends to dish up to us this season. And, um, will it be coherent? I don't know. Will it be like stylish and really like fascinating and I can't stop watching it? Absolutely. Yes. Um, but you know, that describes, I think a lot of the leftovers as well. So, um, and I love that show. So. There you go. So are there watch people? <laughs> is Angela, like, how big of a figure is she? Or is she just kind of a local version of this So thing? she strikes me as, like, uh, you know, the most Im- impressive. He's, like, second in command almost is what she sort of feels like, right? Um, but just, yeah, in Tulsa. But right. not okay. nationally, but, but the, wa- the, the Watchmen initiative as it pertains to the cops, like basically I think the detectives dress in these like fanciful costumes and then the cops just mm-hmm. wear those like yellow masks and uniforms, you know? 
Right. right. Um, okay. and so I think that this is just the roster of characters. You know, we, we, there's a few, there's the pirate Jenny one, there's the panda one, there's, uh, the one that I love called Red Scare, which is that guy in like the red tracksuit. Uh, and then there's Looking Glasses played by Tim Blake Nelson, um, to name just a few that are the Tulsa folk. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, very, very sweet, but, you know, sort of like dirtbag lefty boys that I was friends with at the end of high school. Um, one of them had a, had this like sh- terrible, like broken down, uh, car that he would drive around. Then it was red and he called it the Red Scare. <laughs> He was a, a burgeoning Marxist. It was, I love that. It's funny. Anyway. At, well, at one point in the episode, we hear, uh, Judd on the phone with a character, uh, I think he called, he refers to him as Senator Keene and we hear a snippet on the radio. And this is a character played by, uh, James Wolk, aka, uh, Bob Benson from Mad Men. Um, and the Keen Act. AKA King of TV Pilots. Yes. <laughs> uh, the lead of Zoo. Um, Senator Keene, the Keene Act, um, is the act that, um, outlawed vigilante, um, crime fighters. Um, mm. they, I think they refer to him as Joe Jr. So I think he's like the son of the senator who put that, um, thing into motion. But so we're going to see some government stuff, I, I imagine, uh, if James Wolk, uh, is playing this senator figure. So that's, you know, there's some stuff, there's plenty of stuff that we have yet to see, plenty of surprises to come, uh, plenty of expansion of the universe. But, um, I don't know, like, what would you recommend, um, you know, if, if you're talking to friends who haven't read the source material, like, how would you recommend they navigate something this dense? Would you say just like, just go with it and roll with it? I mean, like, I'll just, I'll answer really quickly. I kind of would, after the leftovers, I kind of would. I would say trust in Lindelof that you're going to get to a place that's going to feel emotionally worth it and coherent enough, uh, you know, that, that your initial confusion will have been worth it. Um, but what do you feel about it, Richard? Well, I mean, it is tricky because we, we sort of forget that the first season of The Leftovers, it happened before the second, you know, because like the second season was really where it really like just went off on its own wonderful, beautiful, crazy tangent. Um, so we at least had those first episodes, which were a little bit more straightforward at yes. least to kind of ease That's us in, true. whereas this is just dropping us right in. Um, you know, yes, it is a lot to ask of peak, you know, in this peak TV time. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you were a fan of leftovers, uh, cl- clearly that, you know, loyalty is rewarded. Um, you know, I think the bigger thing is like, if this sort of subject matter and this political discourse is one that you want to sort of see through. Like, I, I think that's a sort of trickier question to answer. Um, you know, on first watching this episode, I was sort of texting with a friend who'd seen it and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, is this saying that like, if, you know, black Americans are given a certain degree of power and reparations that everything descends into chaos. Because if so, that's like basically what people who white people who warn about like a race war yeah. say, you know, I'm like, well, fuck that ideology, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I sort of slept on it and then talking it through with you. I'm like, you know, okay. Like I, I, I guess, I, you know, I, I, there, there, there's enough intrigue here where, and I don't think that Lindelof or 
Nicole Castle or anyone involved is coming at it from any sort of supportive stance, you know, any of this kind of bad stuff. So, I, but the, yeah, again, there's enough intrigue here. Where I'm like, okay, I'm curious to see what they do with this very, very tricky, um, you know, sort of what ifing that the show is doing. I both admire and I'm worried for Lindelof in that, in this, because I admire the ambition of what, and what he wants to do, I think genuinely comes from a place of trying to grapple with our, our current landscape, our president, our, our fractured nation, all of that through the lens of Watchmen. I think that that's a really brilliant thing to do, right? Cause he's just sort of like, he, uh, something that we haven't mentioned actually is that in this alternative universe, cell phones like, don't exist, which is a very convenient, uh, narrative device. Yeah. Um, but, um, that, uh, you know, he, he's like, okay, if Alan Moore wanted to grapple with like Nixon and Reagan and the Vietnam War and the Cold War, like I want to grapple with like Trump and, you know, um, the emboldened, latent, but always there fascistic sort of, um, white supremacy in America and all that sort of stuff. That's what he wants to do through the lens of Watchmen. And I think that that is an, an admirable thing to want to take on. I think it's a thing that is really, uh, could easily be misinterpreted. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. so I worry that he will be misinterpreted and I, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I understand why some other people might be like, I, my life's too short to give this person the benefit of the doubt. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, that's the, the, the real thing it has to combat is not may, maybe not so much. Oh, this is terrible and blah, blah, you know, offensive or whatever. And, and, and may, and, you know, and that's not to minimize offense, you know, anyone who feels, um, like really put off by this and, and, and offended, but, um, it, it could also just be like the, the, the fight is like just that kind of TV inertia at this point, you know, like, like did this episode do enough to hook people? I think there are enough kind of things dangled that, that it, it seems interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately this is the only scheduled episode we have about this show, but like, you know, I think it might merit revisiting later on, like maybe at a finale or some point, but like, um, because I'm, I am curious to see where this is headed. Yeah, uh, I'd like because to, they set up so much. Yeah, I'd like to leave the door open for us to to possibly do that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And yeah, and and that's the thing is like when when the Confederate thing was announced, the Weiss and Benioff uh, Confederate thing, um, the premise alone made people go like, uh, no, thank you, right? But right. more than that, when when people are pushing back and being like, how dare you judge a thing when you haven't seen it yet? I'm like, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, like. I've seen Weiss and Benio, right? And so like, right. and I've seen like, you know, I don't think they're racist guys, but I think they have certain, like, I think they have tunnel vision, uh, and, and, and just tone deafness sometimes when it comes to that kind of stuff as evidence through some of the choices made on Game of Thrones. And so that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's what's informing my decision to not want to see that. Uh, in that same vein, Lindelof's previous work is what is informing me to want to watch the Watchmen. So, you know, um, yeah. he has earned for me, he has earned that benefit of the doubt. If he hasn't for other people, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and that is where we are with Watchmen. Uh, let us go now, uh, shall we to our conversation with the great Tim Blake Nelson, who is not only part of Watchmen, as I said, uh, but he's in two, uh, this is a little, little gold men crossover, two award season ish movies, uh, Just Mercy and The Report. 
And, uh, you know, so, so a great time for my guy, Tim Blake Nelson, who I've been a huge fan of ever since. Oh, brother, where art thou? Let us go. Now to that chat. Hello. Hi there, Joanna. We are going to talk about the report, Just Mercy and Watchmen all together, if that's okay with you. Sure. Kicking off with your character, Looking Glass, who has this great, um, look to him. I'm wondering if you can talk uh, about what the, what the masks, what the idea of wearing a mask means to your character emotionally, um, in the show. Like a lot of the characters in the uh, original Watchmen and also Damon Lindelof's imagination of that world's future, which is now our present, Looking Glass is informed by trauma in his own life and trauma in his present life and how these commingle. And the answer is, in part, concealment. And in Looking Glass's case, this involves a measure of hiding from his self, which is ironic because his mask would seem to indicate the opposite. Right. Since it's a mirror. Right. And that's where one goes for, literally, for reflection. But this is a character who has no mirrors in his house. And that's a decision that Damon and I made. Or no, just Damon. That Damon <laughs> Damon made early on. I, I actually, I, I will say that he made it. I'm, now that I'm remembering it, it was actually he who had that idea. Um, and so Looking Glass is a character who goes beyond the opacity of a mask and sends curiosity back at the viewer. Yeah, I like that. In the form of the viewer's own reflection. I know that you've said that Damon, uh, you know, originally talked to you about this role, said maybe the role was too small for an actor of your caliber, and then decided to expand the role and, and bring you in anyway. In expanding the role, did he work collaboratively with you at all? Did you get to have input on what the expansion would look like? For th- Just to make it clear so that you don't mischaracterize, um, I never said an actor of my caliber. No, no, no. He said, he said, <laughs> yeah, we'll put uh, it in his, his, his mouth. Yes. He just said, um, uh, this might be too small for you and I'll let that mean what it means. Sure. But, um, and, and then he, and, and he gave it a think and, and came back to me and said, I'm reimagining who and what this guy is in the story. And I think it might interest you more than I did a few days ago. But but in that in that expansion, then did was there any form of collaboration between the two of you? Did you get to put to have any input on the shape of Looking Glass? This isn't unique to me. The way Damon works is that he leaves a good deal open for himself, so that he can allow what actors bring to inform how they're going to inflect the trajectory of a season. And so, yes. Uh, a, a, a lot of what he and the writers imagined was the result of how I was answering the challenges episode by episode. That's true about all of us, not unique to me. I, you know, I think that, that, that was true, uh, uh, with Regina, with Yaya, with Jean, and with Hong. When he, when, when he wrote episode, when the, the, they didn't know what was going to happen in episode five 
when we were, you know, I, I, I think, uh, the first I started hearing about episode five was I think episode three during episode three, they were, they were really putting it together. Now that may be simply when I was hearing about it and they, they, they had notions before then, but I can absolutely tell you that once he decided that I was going to, that, that there would be enough for me to do, uh, to where he wanted me to play the role, I was presented with a notion that ended up being completely different from what they ultimately provided oh. as looking glasses, as they call it, origin story. But typical of Damon, you know, I, and I, don't, I like this, actually. I'm not complaining. I think it's interesting. It's a really interesting way to work. I started to build the character based on that knowledge, that understanding. Right. And then sometime around the, you know, during the pilot, he said, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. And of course, then I thought, well, my God, then I failed him because I'm not playing the character he wrote. And so then he came up with, I think what's probably better for the story as a whole, because it's a more, it's a more understandably pervasive and universal fear that this guy is traumatized by having been there on, you know, when the squid attack happened, the, right. the big one. Right. Well, what's what's interesting to me about that, um, about your character's involvement with the squid attack, so this squid attack, which closes out the original Watchmen story, which is written in the 80s, but as we understand that squid attack on New York now, and it is like, it makes a perfect, uh, to use an uncomfortable word, perfect 9-11 metaphor for us, right? Well, that's what he's intending, because it's 9-12 or something. It's like yeah. 2-11 or something, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then you're, um, and then you've got this, um, this great part in the film, the report, uh, which is coming out, uh, in, on November 15th, uh, which also deals with sort of our psychic wound around nine 11. And so given that you were sort of involved in both of these properties, I was wondering what, what thoughts you've been having on, on that trauma kind of trauma specifically and, and how we talk about it. I certainly didn't set out, uh, a year ago when I was, working on these projects uh, to self-importantly to address uh, uh, um, national trauma or some sort of geopolitical interstice that we experienced around 9-11 and, and, uh, and, and its aftermath. And, you know, of course, 9-11 is my generation's Pearl Harbor in a certain sense. So, but where, where I do... And, and where I think it's a, actually quite a good question um, is that what I what I do look for are projects that are going to be made by storytellers who have um, an almost dowser sense of what's relevant. And Damon Lindelof and Scott Z. Burns and 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 Steven Soderbergh as well, who produced um, and and Jennifer Fox, who produced the report, as well as Destin Daniel Cretton. Um, they 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 all share that, and I was lucky enough to be offered roles of varying sizes uh, <laughs> in their projects, and um, there was no way I was going to turn down those opportunities. And when I do turn down movies, it's often because they don't 
feel um, current or uniquely visionary or challenging in ways that feel irresistible. Well, you, you talked about the uh, irresistible challenge of working, uh, you know, with with let's say Dustin Daniel Cretton on Just Mercy. I want to ask you an actor craft question, if I can, which is. In that film, you're playing, uh, the real life figure of Ralph Myers, who has, um, you know, mm-hmm. slight physical disfigurement from a traumatic thing that happened to him when he was a child. And, uh, which means that you have the actorly challenge of composing your face in a certain way, uh, in every mm-hmm. single scene. And I was wondering if you could talk about the challenge of that and the challenge of, of acting with a mask on, like both of, both acting with a mask on in Washman and this, this facial mask that you yourself create with your, with your own face. Uh, it just received, just seemed the, these, these things feel like, uh, interesting challenges. And I was wondering if you could talk about them. One thing I, I believe I do better now as an actor than I used to is that I take my time. In ways that weren't always that, in, in ways that weren't always the case, and so finding out how to get to and at and and ultimately find Ralph Myers uh, was a process that 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 began really about uh, I, I think probably six to eight weeks before I started shooting, um, and, and and that involved just allowing him to seep into me without ever trying him on for a good month. And so I literally spent time several hours a day with the script and with the videotape, the video uh, material I had of him. And whereas in the past, I immediately would have jumped in to try to, to, um, find that in, an, in a, in a um, uh, an immediately imitative way. Uh, I just let him in more, um, so that so that I could work from the inside out in ways that I don't always feel that I have. And it's just it's just you know I've been doing this for a while. I'm 55 now and. And uh, I really started taking acting seriously when I went to drama school at age 22. So that's a long time. That's mm-hmm. that's over 30 years now. And um, I, I just I've I found that impatience and a lack of faith that I would get there caused me to act, to work in a more superficial um, indicative way. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be indicative. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, That that went from the outside in. And so really finding this Ralph Myers character was, was ultimately about having the confidence and the patience to know that I'd get there and not have to find him immediately. And so I started playing around with it and, uh, you know, about a month in and for two weeks I, talked with um, the makeup artist back and forth about it. And he's a guy named David Atherton with whom I've worked for 
I think a dozen. I've, I've worked with him about a dozen times now. And so we got down to um, to Georgia at my request um, to to Destin a little over a week early. It's a minimal approach. Um, basically, he's done the burns on my face, but there's no the lip is all just done from the inside out. Um, you know, uh, and because I've been working on it for such a long time, for most of the time, I think it looks pretty natural. But it just allowed for finding it naturally in collaboration with a really good makeup artist for the burns and with Destin. Um, with Watchmen, you know, I guess, again, it starts with Damon, not me. Uh, he wrote a really interesting character just that, that was already there in the pilot. Just that mask alone is so intriguing. Why would a guy choose this um, face-forming, almost li- liquefied mirror of a mask on his face? Uh, the most opaque mask in the show, who's, who's resolutely of the place in which the show is, is set. He is an Oki. You're an Oki. <laughs> Right. Uh, and there was, you know, down to the handlebar bar mustache. He's also an incredibly laconic character. And so what I found most interesting in, in working on Looking Glass actually is how it juxtaposed, the, the playing of it juxtaposed um, with working on masks in drama school. Yeah. Because in drama school... You end up doing you. You end up having these uh, uh, doing mask work, and the purpose of mask work, or a purpose of mask work, is to hobble you as an actor, so that you can only use your voice and your body and not your face, and that usually results in amplification of your remaining, um, you know, what remains of your apparatus. Uh, so it means more movement often, and it means, uh, more nuance in your voice. And usually often because mass classes rely often on improvisation. If you're, uh, speaking from behind the mask or if you're wearing a half mask, um, more, uh, text. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, louder, faster, funnier with the voice and bigger with the body. What I found with looking glass is that, is that when I put the mask on and I, I think again, because I just slowed myself down in terms of the work, I found that my impulses were going in the opposite direction. And so that he becomes more still with the mask and quieter with the mask, mm. more laconic, um, and that that just that really surprised me. Um, and I think it ultimately has to do with how, for each character in the show, the mask empowers us mm. because with the anonymity. Um, you can get away with more. And because so much of you becomes inscrutable, uh, 
people are more afraid of you and they yield status to you. And that just happened immediately in scenes. And I found myself having to do less as a character. Whereas, again, in math class back at Juilliard, one always felt the impulse to do more without the face. I also went to a bit of theater school and I did some mask work. And my memory of the masks is that, you know, we would use these like sort of thick spandex sort of mask things. And my memory is that, uh, it smelled awful and was deeply uncomfortable inside those masks. Um, <laughs> did, did you, what was your, what was it like wearing your mask on Watchmen? I'll tell you this, they, they had, so Damon and, and Nikki, uh, and again, I showed up early because I just, one of the benefits of this on Watchmen was a, a discussion early on about five days before we started shooting with Damon and Nikki about the, um, shooting strategy with the digital effects folks on the floor when they were shooting with the different types of masks I would wear. And so they said there are going to be three different types. There's going to be a green screen and sometimes fractal mask made of cloth. And you'll be able to see through that. There's going to be a cloth reflective mask with uh, um, uh, little fine, uh, very fine reflective scales, basically is what it was, but that will fit as a like cloth over your face. And then we're going to use for wider shots, we're going to have a hard plastic mask that is entirely reflective that you'll wear that will for which there will have to be no digital work it's just going to be a hard plastic reflective mask um and so i said and they said and and then they said and you're going to have to wear a camera on a crown a gopro oh. on a crown uh when you wear the green and fractal masks so that we have an image um to project digitally onto the green or fractal mask in post. And so all of that really interested me. I, I said, that sounds really, you know, that uh, fascinating as a process. And whatever it does to me as an actor, I'm open for it because it'll just, if, if it, it will only be interesting. Right, yeah. The worst it'll be is interesting. And interesting, if you allow it to, can inform a performance in surprising ways. Uh, so that was all great, except for that hard mask. And I, I was given the hard mask during the for the first shot on the first day of shooting, which for me was a night shoot, which we started at around midnight and was going to go most of the rest of the night, you know, toward dawn. And it was a scene with Don Johnson in the hospital in the pilot. Mm -hmm. And I put that hard mask on and I could neither move my head nor see my scene partner. Uh. And, um, 
I just I found it untenable. Yeah. Uh, I just couldn't do my job. Yeah. And I'm a don't complain, don't explain actor. And for I think the first time in my career, I said, I can't. This is too much. I can't. I can't see Don. So I'm just sort of acting in. You know, I don't feel like I'm able to connect with my scene partner, which which serves neither of us. Uh, and I also can't really move. I can't move my head. It's just too constricting. Uh, and so that was the last I ever. That, I, so I never again had to wear that mask. Okay. Um, and the production had to. You know, they 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 adapted. Um, otherwise it was great. You know, it was all, <laughs> it was all good. Um, I could always see through the cloth masks okay. and the wearing of the cameras, although sometimes a bit, um, uh, uh, cumbersome, uneasy lies the crown. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, um, it was really interesting to be part of the filmmaking apparatus. Yeah. So, you know, to be this, this person filming others, it's this, it, 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 I kept thinking of it as this other version of a body cam, um, in scenes and internalizing that helped with the character in, in, in a strange way, uh, because looking glass is at least in his own mind, recording the responses of others to determine what they're really up to behind the facade of their own faces. Right. I, what, that's another interesting, possibly coincidental, probably coincidental, uh, connecting theme through these three projects, uh, is this idea of interrogation, lie detection, truth telling, uh, you can sort of mm-hmm. get it across all three, just mercy, the report and this. And once again, I know that that's probably coincidence, but I'm wondering, um, you know, since you are immersed yourselves in these three projects, what thoughts you had had about this theme of interrogation? I do feel as I know Damon does, um, that the masks in Watchmen are an apt metaphor for the mask of our faces. And humans lie to each other. We dissemble, we conceal, we, for the most part, tell the truth only when it advances our own interests. And I think that the most truthful people understand that being a truth teller or an honest person advances his or her own interests long term. And that's why trustworthy people are valued. And that can be seen by anyone as a as an advantage. We all want to be valued. There's a premium on truth. And it's generally rewarded if we find others to be trustworthy. Right. And where we get into trouble is by deceiving ourselves into thinking that it's that that the short term advantages of lying or concealing uh are long term advantages. And for the most part they aren't. But at the same time I think you know, I agree with that guy, um, 
Yuval Noah Harari, I think is his name, who wrote Sapiens. Mm. Uh, we're also advantaged um, as a species by bending the truth, by gossiping, <laughs> by, you know, the societal protections of courtesies when maybe we don't necessarily mean it. So it suddenly gets very complicated. But generally, that premium on the truth, I think, does obtain in how we relate to one another um, and what we value uh, in our long-term lives and our long-term interactions. Uh, and all of these projects, I mean, I think all three of these projects uh, examine that ideal in one way or another. In Watchmen, there's, I think, an unambiguous pursuit of the of, of how the revelation of truth and the solving and of mystery and ex, an exposure of of mystery is ultimately for all of our benefit. Right. And what's interesting about Watchmen is that the the main weapon in that pursuit is uh, concealment and vigilantism and a lot of extrajudicial behavior. Right. Right. And I think that the and I think that the I think that the show is um, admirably quite honest in um and showing, uh, you know, how that uh, how that afflicts the very flawed people who are wearing these masks and pursuing justice. Do you feel that that sort of dogged pursuit of truth—that the truth, the truth will inevitably be better for us, no matter the consequences—sort of thing—is um, that a response to the ending of the original book, which is? A lie told for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is it a lie? So he drops a squid on New York, right? Right. And and he, I, I think what he does is, you know, the squid is not a lie; it happens. Vite allows it to be interpreted in the most likely but still false way, because who would ever think that this was anything but? some sort of an extraterrestrial force for which humanity needed to band together. <laughs> uh, he calls it a hoax. Uh -huh. I believe Damon has him call it a hoax. I'm not sure he calls it a hoax in Alan Moore's text. I'm not that. I, I'm, I'm not the Maimonides of uh, <laughs> the original Watchmen. Um, but... Uh, um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's an answer to that. And I'm, you know, again, just, I think some lies are probably salutary and we probably lie to ourselves every day just to just get through our days without, you know, taking everything in our wallet and going down to the nearest homeless encampment and just giving everything away and all our justifications and think we're leading decent lives when every fucking one of us is implicated. Um in some sort of injustice. And again, I think that's what Damon's examining with the masks in Watchmen, because the 
the masks allow just in that first episode, Angela Abar to, to, to Sister Knight to go into that to Nixonville, grab a guy without due process. We shove him into this pod and then beat the shit out of him so that we can find out where the bad guys are hiding. There are no Miranda rights, <laughs> right. uh, et cetera. And I'm, I, I think that the masks allow that to happen. And Damon isn't afraid to show that. Yeah. I think it's interesting. We're vigilantes. Um, that's what, that's what agent, that's what Lori Blake says. Right. What's the difference? Right. Um, yeah. So my last question for you, you like someone only has to talk to you for two seconds to know how brilliant you are. Um, that I'm a pseudo intellectual. That no, that you're an intellectual intellectual. But <laughs> but when I I thought it was interesting reading the original character description um, of your of your character in Watchmen. It's uh, there was something about how uh, you know basically his Oki accent belies his intelligence. And so I was wondering, you know, you've got this like beautiful accent, um, and I'm wondering, you know, if you've if people have made assumptions about you based on where in the country you come from, based on your accent, if you can extrapolate that to your Watchmen character. Did you grow up in the Bay Area, or did you grow up in the middle of the country? I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I am afflicted, as uh, is much of my generation and, and people from California, with saying like and you know a lot. And I know that people definitely make assumptions about my intelligence based on the way that I speak. So I think people just have their ideas about... That has not, have. by the way, struck me during this conversation. <laughs> Okay. That has not struck me during this conversation. I have not noticed you littering any of your speech <laughs> with likes and you knows. And I'm with three sons. Uh, I'm quite sensitive to that. Uh, so you've concealed it well in this conversation. Um, when I went to college, I particularly, by East Coasters, could tend to look down on, on those of us from the middle of the country, but that abated pretty quickly. I don't really feel I've been disadvantaged by coming from Oklahoma in terms of people's perceptions. Just speaking directly to your question, and this is going to sound disingenuous, but I actually really mean it. Everybody is smarter than everybody else. You just have to find the right <laughs> topic or area. Anybody who doesn't understand that is a moron. There's something to learn, really, from every single person. Uh, and that more than anything, has been part of my life's pursuit. And it's one of the reasons I like acting is to try on these other people who know more than I do about certain topics, can do stuff that I can't do, can feel in ways that I can't or haven't yet, and to challenge myself in, in pursuit of those experiences. And that can mean learning to play the guitar so that I can be Buster Scruggs or, or, or learn to um, spin pistols. Uh, if you play a mechanic, you can learn about a car engine. With Watchmen, what's it like to wear a mask? Because if you don't, you could be identified and people and, and, and you might get assassinated. Mm -hmm. You might get murdered. You know, all that stuff. It's interesting to explore these characters. What would it be like to have seen waterboarding to understand that it 
breaks international law and flouts everything that America is supposed to stand for. And live with that until you can't, and so you blow the whistle. From that, you know, that, that way of, 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 uh, from that way of thinking, um, and from other people having that way of thinking, because I don't believe that this is a unique point of view. Uh, I really haven't felt that disadvantage. For me to say I'm disadvantaged about any damn thing is, would be ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not even sure that I was angling after disadvantage. It's more like it can almost be an advantage to have people underestimate you in any given situation, think something of you, and then you have an opportunity to surprise or dazzle them, you know? So that was sort of more what I was thinking of. But I, I suppose that's some, that, yeah, I, I'll tell you. So I'm Jewish, and but my name is Tim Blake Nelson, and I wear, play all these hick roles, but mm-hmm. I'm. I'm very I'm Jewish. Jewish, actually, uh, we did um, Ancestry dot com, and I'm a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jewish. Uh-huh. Uh, but what? But since I have this name, and I'm from Oklahoma, and I play these roles, I hear a lot of anti-Semitism because nobody fucking thinks I'm Jewish. And all you have to do is read on the internet. I don't hide it. Yeah. Um, and. That's been interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think thematically to what Watchman is dealing with, which is uncovering some of these unsavories, uh, I think that that is definitely relevant. And I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. Oh, it's nothing. Well, thank you. Thank you for your, for your very thoughtful um, answers. I really, really appreciate the chat very much. Oh, you bet. So we are taking a break next week. We have no episode scheduled for still watching next week. So enjoy the week off. And then we will be back the following week to discuss the first episode of His Dark Materials, uh, the HBO adaptation of the Philip Pullman uh, trilogy. And uh, we this is a Monday show for HBO. So our episode of Still Watching will come out, um, I believe, on that Monday, the 4th. So you can look for the next episode of Still Watching on November the 4th. Um, and until then, Richard, where can folks find you? I'm just going to be hiding behind a cow, hoping to make it through the night, honestly. Uh, and while I'm there, I'll be tweeting from Rylaws and writing at BF.com. Where will you be doing uh, I will be sheltering under an umbrella, avoiding the latest squid storm. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This for my squid updates, or you can listen to us both on the podcast Little Gold Men, or you can find us on VanityFair.com, and we will see you for His Dark Materials in November. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.